This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We have an update that brush fire burning on the Big Big Island has been contained 100%, but that blaze has raised the need to be vigilant on Maui, where drought conditions led the county to declare a stage one water shortage for upcountry residents this month. This morning, the Conversations Russell Subiano spoke with Maui Council Member Yuki Le Sugimura, who represents upcountry Maui, about the drought's effects. We've seen some posts on social media that some Maui residents feel like they're being targeted by the call for water conservation, while hotels are allowed to continue normal use because of their occupancy levels. Is this accurate, or can you clear up any misconceptions about the situation? So that is inaccurate, wrong information, because as you know, water resources are, you know, like the bloodline, right? Mm -hmm. So Water resources for, if you're talking about the south side, which is Wailea, McKenna, you know, that side of Maui, that water actually comes from central Maui. So water from upcountry does not feed those resorts. I think that's what people are saying. Mm -hmm. And the upcountry water drought condition impacts the upcountry residents, farmers, ranchers, you know, people who are, you know, in that geographic area. So it, it sounds like okay. the, the hotels, the resorts are under a, a completely different water source. Yeah, water line. Yes, okay. correct. And do you have a general idea of what's causing the drought and what led to mm. the restrictions? So um, having been a resident for upcountry Maui for over 30 years, I, can re- I can't tell you exactly how many you know times, but it is kind of a way of life for us mm-hmm. that when it gets to be summer months, which summer months, and usually that's when the drier weather or dry season is, which is May through September. And interesting, isn't that when we have our concern for fire, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it's all tied together, you know, weather and the conditions, you know, our geographic conditions and rain. So water is really important and our watersheds are really, really important that, you know, we preserve those areas so that we can get water, you know, for for our residents. It seems like it's very important to be vigilant at this time. I know as yeah. we're talking, Hawaii County is battling a brush fire. I imagine that it's it's important for many reasons to be vigilant, but potential for brush fire is a big one yeah. right now. That's always a big concern, you know, and especially because our lands, if you just look down from Haleakala where I live, if you just look on the central plains, you can see that, you know, our our yeah, we're 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 susceptible to it seems like water restrictions are just a are really just a short term solution. In your role as chair of the yes. infrastructure and transportation committee, what more can Maui County do to help alleviate the impacts of drought now and in the future? As an infrastructure chair, which includes environmental management and wastewater landfill, you know, mm-hmm. as well as public works for roads and safety. In that, I think that having water infrastructure is very important. And one of the things that I would like to, I'm, I'm proposing for our council to take up, and I hope it gets referred to my committee infrastructure, is to look at we need to drill more water and have more water resources available for our growing community. And I know people are, are right now focused on the number of visitors that have come back to our islands, and and we're seeing the impact of that going from, I always call it, we went from zero during COVID, where hardly any visitors, not that there weren't any, but not as many were on the island, to when the visitor market opened up as COVID has gotten better, right? And mm-hmm. people have been feeling cramped up. And they have flown to Hawaii, which is in the United States, so they feel safe, which we all do. And we've done a really good job with COVID. And so, you know, the people who feel safe, which are, you know, our our fellow citizens, are coming to Maui. And so people are feeling like, you know, the impact of that. And I think what they're equating the water drought to, that we have too many people. But my feel or my read on this is that we need to actually drill more water resources. And our, of course, it takes millions of dollars, and I believe that we can rely on our partnerships with the state of Hawaii. I believe that we need to, you know, start looking at this problem square in the eye and say, let's, you know, let's tackle this together so we don't have our residents feeling imposed upon and that they have enough resources and feel comfortable and safe for their families. 
Because of the drought, we've also heard that access deer populations are moving or starting to come ah. down into the residential areas, looking for yes. water, looking for food. How does that impact yes. residents? Oh, my. So this is, you're talking about my yard, I think, in uh-huh. Kula, uh-huh. where I live, um, where all of a sudden, um, actually in the month of March, I think, I started seeing deer in my yard, which it happens periodically, but, you know, not that often. I think because I've been focusing on this, I actually believe that we need to do more to prevent the growth of the inundation, really, of the access deer problem that's happening. And as you know, the country area, where, uh, which is my district, we have the breadbasket, right? So we have the ranchers. We have big, you know, parcels of land that they can take care of as well as, you know, they grow cattle, you know, for food security, as well as we have the farmers. So the access deer problem is growing. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be announcing that I'm starting a access deer task force with Mayor Mike Victorino's office. So together, we're going to tackle this problem and look at our federal resources to try to see if we can, you know, approach this and do it in a productive way to control and manage the growing access feral animals because it's also pigs mm-hmm. that are um, attacking you know our now into their into our yards uh, which they must be pretty desperate to come to my yard to look for food because I don't have a garden but they are hungry and they can see that we have some you know greenery which which they probably are are hungry so is there anything else that you want to share with Maui residents about the water shortage declaration the most important thing is the community needs to you know, is being asked to work together to restrict excessive water use. If it's not anything that's essential, you know, please limit your use of water so that we have enough water for our families and our, you know, food security, which is which is important to keep our communities healthy and fed. So while upcountry residents have been asked to conserve water, the bigger impacts have actually been on the area ranches. Jordan Jokiel is the vice president and land manager for the nearly 30,000-acre Haleakala Ranch. He shared how the dry conditions directly affects his acreage. In this dry, hot summer we've had so far, and again, it's only halfway through, we're only in mid-July, but just a very short bulleted list in no particular order, is a proliferation of invasive species, so that's plants as well as animals. There's an enhanced wildfire threat with all the dry fuels. There's also an increased need to maintain and improve our water system because it's just really important that every drop of water gets to where it needs to get get to on the ranch. And then also uh, lack of feed for cattle because, you know, our, our pastures are not irrigated. All the water that we use on the ranch out, out in our pastures is to provide water, drinking water for cattle. So our feed, you know, the, the amount of feed we have is completely dependent on the amount of rainfall that we get on the ranch. And so what, what kinds of things does your ranch do when drought conditions happen? How does that impact your your water system? Do you have to reduce the amount of water that's available to the cattle? So, so what we have to really do when there are, you know, water shortages on the ranch is we have to make sure that first we have no leaks. And we do that year-round, whether there's a drought or not. But it becomes especially important during a drought. We shut off water to pastures where we do not have active grazing taking place. We only move water to areas that we have active grazing. And we also have to take extra care and time to make sure that all of our pipes and all of our valves and all of our intakes and all of our pumps are all in good working order. And that's it's a full-time job for two staff, really two staff plus intermittent people that help with that on a, on a daily basis is just to manage the ranch's water system. I mean, we have miles of water lines. We have hundreds, probably, of water troughs. We have valves all over the place, and all of that stuff is, is full-time work for, for our whole water management program. And in addition to making sure that your cattle have water and cutting off water from areas that don't necessarily need it right now, I imagine there's an increased need to be vigilant about the dry areas of your property as well. I know Big Island is battling a brush fire right now. What do you guys do to kind of monitor the situation? So so especially every summer we have the threat, actually year-round we have the threat of wildfire, but in summer that's that certainly enhanced. So at the beginning of every summer, we, we have fire breaks that we put in around. There's, there's two fire breaks that we make sure we try to clear every year, and we're actually in the process of doing that now. We have one that's adjacent to Maui Meadows down in Kihei, and we 
have another fire break that's adjacent to Kulakai upcountry. So we work with contractors to make sure that those are clear. We also have to be really careful and vigilant in terms of security on the ranch because if we have people who come into the ranch and you know just don't understand the sensitivity that we have to the potential for wildfire, you know we need to make sure that no one is on the ranch and just camping or lighting fires and and potentially just getting having fires just run out of control. In 2016, we had a pretty bad wildfire system. I don't have the statistics for last year, but we lost a thousand acres and it was in at least three large fire events. None of those fire events actually started on the ranch. They all started either on the roads or adjacent to the ranch property. Mm-hmm. So through a combination of deliberate, you know, mechanical control of clearing fire breaks with with mechanized equipment like mowers and skid steers and weed eaters, we also have a very well managed grazing program that we try to use to help reduce fuels because the fire will only burn where there's fuel. And you can see from some of the fire footprints in previous years is a lot of times fire will just run through a pasture, but when there's a pasture that's been deliberately well grazed to manage to the fire threat, the fire will stop right at that pasture boundary. And, and so that's a hard thing to coordinate, but, but that is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to implement as well. What kind of things have you heard from other Maui ranches about how they're being impacted? The conversation is very similar on other ranches. There's a proliferation of deer, an associated proliferation of invasive species. There's a struggle to, you know, keep the land well managed. There's a struggle to, you know, keep feed available for cattle. They move cattle a lot. It's a similar conversation, as far as I can tell, with the other ranches on Maui. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. You have a great day. Thank you. Aloha. We were hearing from Haleakala Ranches, Jordan Jokio and Maui Council member Yukile Sugimura. They spoke with HPR's Russell Subiona this morning about the drought conditions in the upcountry area of the Valley Isle. Restaurants. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby on the line today. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on today. Yeah, so you got your hands on a data dump. Uh, Share with our listeners uh, what you were looking at. That's right. So um, back in March, when Congress passed the uh, $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, they included uh, $28.6 million for what's called a Restaurant Revitalization Fund. Now, this is money that was targeted specifically towards helping out bars, restaurants, and other eating establishments um, that suffered through the coronavirus pandemic because many of them were forced to shutter uh, their doors, resort to doing takeout or curbside service. Um, And so this fund opened up in May to these restaurants to try to offset some of the losses they experienced in revenue. And recently, the Small Business Administration that was um, administering this program released information about which restaurants actually received money. Now, uh, the story that we have today on Civil Beat looks at the restaurants that received money, but it also uh, looks at some of the restaurants that didn't receive money. Uh, now, this is a problem that happened nationally. Um, there, the, the money ran out uh, really quickly <laughs> um, before uh, many of the restaurants who had applied for this grant funding even had an opportunity to get their hands on it. And in Hawaii, uh, fewer than half of the restaurants that had applied for this funding actually received it. Overall, though, how did we fare? As a state, Hawaii did quite well. Um, we ranked first per capita among states in terms of the amount of money coming into the state. Now, uh, restaurants and the businesses um, that, that owned them received about $414 million. Uh, again, that's less than half of what was asked for by these Hawaii companies. They had asked for nearly $1 billion in, in, in federal aid. But that amount is... Uh, far and away the highest among states. Of course, 
the District of Columbia did beat us a little bit on a per capita basis, but that's because here in D.C. we have a ton of restaurants. And you reached out to some restaurant owners about, uh, you know, uh, what kind of money they did get during this pandemic. Uh, What was the snapshot? That's right. So um, we have to remember that of the trillions of dollars of aid that have been approved, not all of it is coming through the Restaurant Revitalization Program or restaurants. They also had opportunities to get access to uh, uh, loans through the SBA called the Paycheck Protection Program or PPP loans. And many of the restaurants that received grants through the Revitalization Fund also received these PPP funds, um, uh, for instance, Roy's. Uh, they have several restaurants around the state, and they received $10 million in restaurant revitalization funds, um, but they had also received millions of dollars in PPP loans. Um, I spoke with uh, the president and CEO of Exit Things, um, which also has multiple locations uh, around the state, about um, the grant that it received as well as the PPP loan that, it had, uh, that they had received. And, you know, she told me that uh, while the funding is, is great, I mean, she received millions and millions of dollars, it's still nowhere near uh, where she was pre-pandemic when, you know, Japanese tourists were still coming to the islands along with the mainland tourists who are, who are now um, returning today. And so this fund, you know, ran out of money, right? Um, what are the plans to replenish it? So that's the million or billion dollar question, right? Um, Where right now uh, there are a lot of restaurants and restaurant associations who are lobbying Congress to see if they can pump more money into the restaurant revitalization fund. Now, the SBA closed it uh, this week. They shut down the portal um, for applications, but already a number of lawmakers have introduced legislation seeking to put another $60 billion into the fund, which would be about, which would be more than twice what was originally there. Now, two of Hawaii, Hawaii's own lawmakers, uh, representatives Ed Case and Kai Kahale, have both uh, co-sponsored uh, that legislation. The question now is whether Congress is actually going to do anything, which, you know, if you know anything about Washington, things are a little bit tied up between the two parties right now. They can't seem to really agree on anything. And your story has links to the actual list, so uh, it's kind of curious to see who got what. And it might be that what uh, you know we have a, a priority list, right, for how that was doled out, whether it was minority-owned or women-owned. Absolutely, the SBA uh, prioritized women-owned businesses as well as those owned by veterans and other businesses that. Um, come from other disadvantaged and minority communities. This was sort of to make up for some of the previous issues uh, related to some of the other funding that came out through the PPP program. Well, it is an interesting list. I I plan to to, uh, dig through there later today, but thanks so much, Nick. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. We have been talking with reporter Nick Gruby with today's reality check. Uh, For his stories, go visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Coming Saturday, July 24th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with the sounds of Aloha Chorus. We'll be joined by several of their quartet ensembles performing barbershop classics as well as a cappella versions in a variety of musical genres. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by TS Restaurants. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The exhibition, Joyful Return, features a gallery presentation of modern and contemporary works from a diverse group of 20th century artists through July 25th. HonoluluMuseum.org.
Here on The Conversation, we mark the centennial of the Hawaiian Homelands Commission Act on Friday. Today, we take a closer look at a move to lower the blood quantum for el- eligibility for the dollar-a-year land, dollar land leases. Uh, the the uh, blood quantum is at 50% now. There are efforts to reduce that to one thirty second. And this morning, we are turned by H- uh, joined by HBR's Kuube Hiroishi to learn more about its history and what happens next. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So I, I should say that, yes, the uh, recently uh, introduced legislation in Congress by uh, Representative Kai Kahele uh, proposes to lower the blood quantum uh, for successors of Hawaiian homestead leases. So for the 10,000 families who are already on homestead lands, uh, who may have intermarried or their kids may have intermarried or their grandkids, um, and therefore the blood quantum of those individuals is lower than uh, the current threshold of 25% for for successors, Uh, these families will be able, if they have the uh, 132nd blood quantum, uh, to maintain that homestead. So it's 25, not 50. I it's mean, 25. It's 25 for successors right now, ah, but for yeah. applicants, and it's this is a very technical but confusing uh, piece of legislation. In the act right now, it is 50% uh, blood quantum requirement. There is a 50% blood quantum requirement for anyone wanting to participate in the program. For those who have already uh, been awarded homestead leases, uh, this issue came up in the 80s where we were already seeing families intermarry, and so children were up to go ahead and take their homestead leases from their parents, but they couldn't qualify because they did not have the 50%. And so that change was made um, through uh, an act of Congress, but it also had to go through the legislature. And now they want to go ahead and lower that to 132nd. Um, And that's exactly so for those that are already on the land. And the history of this, I mean, back in the day, uh, Prince uh, Jonah Kuhio Kalaniane I guess he didn't want, you know, the designation, and I think the the big landowners uh, wanted to, to uh, uh, have something in there to limit the number of Hawaiians that could be eligible for property. That's correct. In sort of uncovering that history, some of us have uh, uh, have intimate knowledge of that, but most might not. Uh, back in the uh, in the 1920s, or even before that, when this legislation was being drafted and sort of taken through the territorial legislature, uh, Prince Kuhio did go ahead and propose a 132nd blood quantum for participation in the program in general. So for every applicant, for every Hawaiian, and that was with the understanding that there would need to be some process for providing proof that uh, you are an eligible beneficiary. But uh, the powers that be at the time, uh, mostly ranchers and and plantation owners, uh, went ahead and and sort of mounted a significant um, opposition to that and actually wanted uh, a 100% full-blooded Hawaiian uh, blood quantum so that that way there would be some sort of limitation to this program. But I, I was able to speak to uh, Cedric Dwart, spokesman for the State Department of Hawaiian Homelands, about this history, and he really he called it uh, an act of compromise in terms of being able to usher this legislation through uh, the state uh, territory or the le- uh, territorial legislature, but al- also uh, U.S. Congress at the time with really no Hawaiians anywhere. Uh, he needed to make a lot of compromises and, and Dwart mentioned some of them. Prince Kohil and the other advocates who pushed this legislation forward in D.C. were met with significant opposition from ranchers and sugar interests. And, you know, two of the most significant compromises, uh, you know, I think they made were, number one, the 50 percent blood quantum, and number two, the acceptance of Class C agricultural lands. So even 100 years ago, they knew that they weren't taking the very best lands. They were taking lands they were Uh, rural in nature and far from any types of water resources. They compromised there and then they compromised on the 50% blood quantum in order to get the act through Congress and ultimately to the president's desk. So it was a compromise and it's a compromise that we still are navigating through today. Yeah, so as uh, some of the oldest Hawaiian homesteads in the Department of Hawaiian Homelands uh, inventory come up on the end of their first uh, initial 99-year leases, because we are 
celebrating the centennial. We're talking about Kolama Ula, uh, whose leases will expire next year, Ho'olehua and Molokai the following year, Keokaha, and so on. It's these families that are really going to benefit from the legislation that Kahele is pushing through. And I should mention uh, that the state legislature did go ahead and pass that Act 80 in 2017. So we have been talking about this for quite some time. And this is just that next step. We'll see how Congress votes. Right. So the governor signed it and uh, now it's up to the feds. uh, And so we've got to convince them that this is the way to go. That that is the case. And and I think a lot of homesteaders who are are sort of thinking about the future of their homestead and also for those who might not have a homestead yet, but for their families to continue to have this uh, homestead in their uh, in their family, they'll want this change. Yeah, it is interesting history, though, to stop and reflect and and, and think about it now, 100 years later. Yes. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we are just coming off the glow of the Merry Monarch Hula Festival, and we've gotten wind of an upcoming hula exhibit at the new expansive art space uh, down in downtown Chinatown. It is called Ho'okupu, to emerge the love of hula. It will feature about a dozen artists who have focused their talent around the culture of hula, including unseen images from the John Kelly and Kate Kelly collection. Some likened it to a show within a show. We talked to Cha Smith, the director of the Kelly Collection. John Kelly has a very strong presentation of hula dancers. He has many versions of hula dancers. And as it turns out, Kate as well, her photographs are just now being revealed for the first time in public. The photos that are not just representations of models that she's done for him to inspire his work, but she's done a body of work that's on her own. That's an amazing collection of images of Hawaii in the 30s and 40s. I have a couple of Kelly prints, and I just love them, but uh, some of these others I hadn't seen before. Yeah, there's lots that haven't been seen. There's a lot of premieres in this show. There's premieres of Kate's statue. She has a a sculpture of a hula dancer. There's premieres of John's work that's never been exhibited before, and oil painting and pastels, and several of the, even the etchings haven't been seen before. We're premiering a watercolor that John did, which is a diptych, which is two, a set, a pair of watercolors that is a phenomenal representation of people in Hawaii in Waikiki on a Saturday afternoon and in Waikiki on a Saturday night. And mm. it's, a, it's like a long 40-inch watercolor. It's pretty big. There's two of them that are 40 inches each that have this trail of people, of all, all kind of people. It's just really outstanding. And the colors are extraordinary. So it's really a don't miss. So the whole exhibit is an honoring of hula and what hula means in Hawaii and what it you know, means to Hawaiian people. So some people are doing oil, some are photographers. There's etchings, there's large format photography that Floyd has done. I think it's going to be quite a eclectic collection. And then, of course, there's a lot of different images in the Kelly portion of the show. So the collection of the Kelly estate, have they been on display before on exhibit? Well, a few of them have, but many have not. So these are premieres of, they're premiering, you know, at this exhibit. Many, Much of the work is premiering at this exhibit. And so talk about Kate Kelly, because folks may not know much about her. Right. Kate is really, I mean, she's primarily known as a sculptor, and she's an extraordinarily accomplished sculptor. Very gorgeous work that she did of Hawaiian heads and also plaques that are all throughout Hawaii, throughout Oahu primarily, but there's there's a plaque on Kauai as well on a, on a heiau there. But 
he has done uh, commemorative plaques that are kind of mark historical areas, like the Queen, like there's a plaque at Washington Place, and there's one at Diamond Head of Amelia Earhart. So she's sort of known as a sculptor and not as well known as a photographer, but I have been digitizing her boxes and boxes of negatives in the last couple of years and have uncovered these phenomenal photographs that are I cannot wait to share them with the public. You know that they're really amazing depictions of 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 people in Hawaii in the 30s and the 40s, just like on the beach, collecting food, harvesting food, having picnics, and the images that'll be at this show will focus on her depiction of hula, which are really all backyard hula. It's really neat. Was there any one that kind of got you? You know, any favorite that you have that you stumbled across as you were digitizing these images? Oh, of all her photos? I just couldn't tell you that. There are so many that are just knock your socks off. They really are quite extraordinary. And just can't wait for them to be published in a book. And I really want to do an exhibit in Hawaii because these are the ancestors of people here. You know, it's like there's they're going to people are going to recognize these folks. <laughs> I mean, it's a small community, yeah. I mean, it's like it's not a huge amount of people that we all that Hawaiian people all come from. So mm-hmm. they're going to look in these at these photographs and say, "Oh, that looks like my tutu or my grandma's my grandma's mother or something." You know, they're going to recognize and there there'll be some familiar faces, I think. One thing that's kind of interesting is that I think Kate has a special place for had a special place for Hula because she was in a halal and she was one of the first first Haoli people in a in a, in this one guy's halal. Anyway, he, she was the first Haoli in this Antoine Kao, who's a pretty famous kumu in the in the twenties, and he was a kumu to many other famous kumu. <laughs> so I think that was kind of a neat connection there. And I, I was just struck by how hula was almost lost, yeah? I mean, it was one of the things that the colonial suppression almost wiped out, like the language. And to see the resurgence of hula throughout the years, especially this year, is pretty spectacular. I think that it's this, this exhibit kind of honors hula in a way that I think is kind of unique and important. All right, so we want to make sure people uh, get to see uh, these images. Uh, And uh, the show runs in August. It's August 3rd to the 28th. Okay. At the Downtown Art Center in Chinatown. For folks who don't know where that exhibit is, because it's fairly new, that space. The place is at uh, Nu'uanu Right at Hotel on the second floor. We have been talking to Charles Smith, the director of the John and Kate Kelly Collection. Uh, It's said to be the centerpiece of an upcoming art exhibit organized around the hula. It will feature close to a dozen artists. For links to the show, check our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Business Magazine. Its 8th Annual Leadership Conference, with in-person and virtual sessions, features more than 45 local and national speakers July 21st and 22nd. Registration at hawaiibusiness.com. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio.
Researchers have discovered an endangered Oahu burrow on Mauna Kea. It's the first documented nesting site of the Hawaiian petrel on Mauna Kea since 1954. University of Hawaii graduate Brett Nainoa Mossman has been looking for an Oahu burrow like this for the past four years. For many long, cold nights on the high elevation slopes, he and his collaborators finally located the endangered native seabird in May. But their excitement turned to dread last week when another creature was spotted on the cameras put up to monitor the nesting site. They saw an image of a feral cat. It's the middle of nowhere. You know, it, it's about as remote as you can get on Hawaii Island, and, and there's a cat there. Cats can actually move quite a distance. You know, like there's records of some cats moving over 60 miles. So there's a possibility that this cat could have come from Hilo. That's why, like, what we do, even in our own backyards, really matters in these critical um, conservation areas. If we lost this bird, it would be really significant because it's the only one that we know for sure is of the Mauna Kea population. And so if we lose that, then that sets us back potentially years. You know, it took us four years to find this one burrow. So if we lose it, it might take us another four years to find another one, or we might not find one at all because these birds are so restricted. And as we've seen, like we, this is the second cat we've had show up at this burrow just in the time that we found it. Mossman is working alongside the Department of Hawaiian Homelands and the Department of Land and Natural Resource to try and trap that cat. Professor Patrick Hart of the University of Hawaii at Hilo worked with Mossman over the past four years to find the Uau Burrow. Hart's bioacoustics lab first captured the calls of the Uau on Mauna Kea in 2018. And you can hear the song of the Hawaiian petrel for yourself in today's Manu Minute. <coughs> The Oa'u, or Hawaiian petrel, is a seabird that spends its entire life at sea, only coming to land in the Hawaiian Islands to breed. Like many Hawaiian birds, Oa'u are named after the sound they make. Their haunting calls can be heard at night as they fly mauka to their nests high in the mountains. Oa'u navigate using the stars and baby Oahu leaving the nest for the first time get confused by artificial lights and can become grounded. This makes them easy prey for dogs and cats. When Oahu were more abundant around the islands, they were considered a great delicacy, but nowadays they're listed as an endangered species. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com What may seem like trash to some is musical treasure in the hands of Afro-Brazilian artist Dende Maceru. World music lovers may recognize him. He started at the young age of 14 when he played in Carlinhos Brown's percussion ensemble known as Timbalada. Take a listen to this track from his album Recycle Sounds, a project that features instruments made of found materials. Since 2001, Macedo has split his time between the U.S. and Brazil, continuing to perform and record. The conversations Lillian Song caught up with Macedo, who's in Hawaii, to teach percussion workshops. I'm from 
Salvador, Bahia, Brazil, in the Northeast, a big city. I grew up playing in the street. I never been in school music and anything, but my school music was in the street, learning a lot from great, incredible masters and teachers in Bahia. So I used to play in the locals, community band, Tambores do Ingenio, Banda Revelação, Samba Pingo de Ouro, Samba Fogueirão. And I became professional when I moved to Candial, a different neighborhood where Carlinhos Brown, a big master, he's the king for me, in my opinion. I love him so much. I, I started to play when I was 14, 14, 15 years old, and Timbalada, Timbalada. It's a, we used to paint our body, no? and it's very tribal. Music to dance, high energy. So I learned a lot. I recording eight albums with them. Especially I recorded also Carlinhos Brown's first album, Alpha Gamma Betisado. And then after that, they choose me to go to Europe and then travel for the whole Europe and then come back. But after I come back for the last trip that I did for Japan in 1996, they decided to change the band, <laughs> and I got in the cot. Okay. They kicked me out. How old were you at that point? I think I was 22, 21, something maybe. But after this decision, then it was struggle again for me. Because in Bahia, it's, it's a huge population of musicians, great musicians, great, great. It's very difficult for everyone. Until today in my community, I mean, try to open my own social project to help kids that are going to the crimes, go to the to drugs and, and kill themselves and gangsters and in communities, in different communities. Um, and I'm trying to also help my community with that because it's very difficult. It's beautiful, it's huge, but it's not mean space for many people develop your own original music like me. I was so lucky because after all of this struggle, I have, I have somebody to help me out to move into New York City no English, no friends, no wife, no mother, nobody. Only my friend Flavio, that today is my compadre, <laughs> you know, he's a, a, a godfather of one of my sons, Matthew. He was the guy who bought me. I met him in five days in Bahia after I was out over Timbalada, no more Timbalada group. And this guy, Attila, friend of mine called me and say, oh, I have somebody that are looking for you to teach him how to play some rhythm, some percussion. I say, well, I'm broke. My mom and me, we are in struggle right now. We don't have electricity in the house, not much to eat. So I'm not here to show you off. I, I really need money. So tell your friend that I need money and I need to be there to make something to bring back home to help my mother. Were you in Bahia when you I met was Flavio? In I was in Bahia. I was in Bahia, and Flavio was in vacation with his wife, Lisa. And then the first time we met, looking eye to eye, you know, and, and, and then we click. That's how things start. Flavio came to my house, and then first class we click, second class, third class. My mother liked him, cooking, simple food for him, and he loved my mother. And, the last day that he's supposed to be leaving to New York City, he said, "Indeed, you very, you are very talented." I said, "Thank you, Flav. Very honest person. I'll be here with you, never asking me anything, take advantage from me for anything." He said, "If I take you to New York City, I said, you what? New York City? You can stay in my house a little bit, and then after you're gonna move in, do your own, your own thing." So I asked my mom. My mom said, that's your dream, that's what you want, go. So I went to Rio de Janeiro first, Flavio Moza house, stayed there until he sent me the money for the ticket. Mm -hmm. I buy the ticket, moved to New York City. Wow. So it, it was pretty fast, but it was this chance meeting. Five days. Five days, you gave him lessons. You guys connected. Connect for the heart. And <laughs> giving ticket now. Oh, <laughs> no, that is a wonderful trajectory for you because you knew you wanted to do music you were already in, you know, a professional at a young age, traveling. You were traveling the world. Have you been to America at that point yet? No. In that time, we were supposed to come into America, and they got a cancer. Oh, but it still worked out for you because you came to America I via can. Flavio. Yeah, I was a little scared, to mm -hmm. be honest with you, you know, leaving my first child over there, Jardel, and uh, my mother alone. <laughs> 
you know, I was very young still, and then um, I was a little confused, you know. I was not sure what I'm doing, but I, after seeing my mom struggle, nothing to eat at home, I said, you know, I, I have to go. Mm-hmm. You're going to provide for Yeah, me. she still survived today because of that. I lived 20 years in America, and until today I'm supporting my mom. Do you go back to Bahia? Yeah, I'm I, I, I supposed to go to Bahia, but right now things are going very tough, very difficult for the COVID. And mm-hmm. What's the situation? situation, people get vaccinated now, and then things going, little by little, slowing. You know, we're waiting for decision, and waiting, 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 waiting. And now things are going very slow. So I, I decided to wait and come into the Hawaii. Now I have a friend of mine, JK, my first friend that I meet him in Philadelphia. Moved to Hawaii and now he lived here for 10 years. So now I'm visiting here with my family and also gonna be having wonderful workshops and stuff like that. I'm very excited. You're a professional musician, but now a teacher. What sort of instruments do you play? I play a lot of different instruments. I mean, also making instruments, you know. I grew up with not much condition to develop or buy, like, a real instrument, so I start to make my own instruments, invite my friends. So when I moved to New York City to see all of these special tools and stuff like that, I start to buy, collect, and make things. I go to the street. I'm also an inventor. Um, you can say I'm a little bit producing. Um, I'm percussion. I play all different kind of percussion uh, that I love and from different countries also I research a lot of different kind of music and I'm not only play Brazilian music but I'm, I love jazz music I love um, music for Bali uh, music for Africa Cuba and Latin music world music for me is music it's like that music that uh, you have a patient to listen mm. so well we do we have a percussion group in, in Philadelphia it's called Arrastão do Dende um, I teach in Philadelphia percussion um, to adults and teenagers too, and do performance, play with different musicians. I, you know, I it's it's going little little by little really well. One of the workshops that you are holding in Hawaii is actually going to be, I believe, recycled instrument making for kids. Exactly. And this is something quite exciting. You mentioned that you would pick things up from the street. So this recycle, I think this ethos would really appeal for yeah, our listeners. Yeah, I have a good Did example you? here. If you Wonderful. Let, if, yes. you, if you let me go so people cannot see it, but they can hear, right? You can describe it for our listeners. So exactly. Well, but it has inspiration. That that, that one over here, people will recognize it maybe because uh, it's a very popular drum in Africa, you know? We call this the talking drums. Mm-hmm. But my talking drums, if you can see, make by cones. Oh, like traffic cones? Traffic cones. It was in the street. Oh, oh, I recognize the bright orange color. Yeah, I produce with the same stick, original stick from the street in Africa. So the talking drum is a very important instrument that sends the message from one village to another. Mm. For example... drums when you press down high note let it go open note so and then you make your communication talking you know? so expressive so expressive over here also I have a coconut shaking it I make this was in Philadelphia this is a make a coconut uh, with beats you can play it a lot of different way this is one jingle and then Christmas you, can play on it. Yeah, you can play together like this There's a lot of different ways that you can play. The last one is a piece of an old PVC in a broke bell and a jump block, right? So you can play like this. So if it is supposed to be in the trash, I look to the trash in America. And it's so just rich. Hold that up again. I'm going to describe it for listeners. So basically, he has this curved PVC joint. Um, that's the base of his instrument. And then he has that, did you say it was a It was bell? a piece of broke bell. Broke bell stuck like, in there. Like in Brazil, we call it agogo. Okay, the agogo yeah, stuck it, into this the This is the, like an old, old jam block, right? Okay. And it's actually, it looks like a fascinating like creature that you would find in a cartoon. But 
what you've done is you put it together and your fingers are doing this wonderful technique on exactly. it. Exactly. What I is develop, that? Well, I developed because I, this is a resonation here. You can mm -hmm. hear difference. So if I put so in my body. Face on the pipe, yes. The oh, songs change. Change that sound. Change that sound, okay. you know what I mean? And Every time that I make an instrument, I want to know how the sound, the sound is my message. Mm -hmm. That's why I mm -hmm. make that instrument. You're not going to hear that in your machine, in your computer. So I can, I can do so many things. Just with the simple instrument that simple. you found and Very you put simple. together. Put it together. Well, this one over here, this is a real instrument. Okay. Yeah. But this is the travel one when I practice in walking the beach and wake up in the morning to warm up my hand. This is called the pandeiro, the Afro-Brazilian pandeiro, a real pandeiro. All right. But I, I also make recycling pandeiro with a pizza mm. box with everything, <laughs> and then I uh, play like that. Just delightful. Some impromptu sounds on recycled and real instruments played by master percussionist Dende Masaru. He held a workshop here on Oahu last week. He'll be holding a couple more on the Big Island. Workshops for teens, kids, and adults. Uh, there's a workshop this afternoon and will end tomorrow in Kealakakua. We'll have links and pictures on our website. We're out of time. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from the Hawaii Blood Bank. We wondered, whatever happened to the COVID plasma collection? We'll be talking about dealing with the increased demand for blood in this latest phase of the pandemic. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.